You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 44. Aisha and Dean Sherzai, plant-based power couple on a mission to restore your cognitive vitality. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, food-for-life cooking instructor, health and wellness coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope you keep coming back as a regular listener. You can find more of my work, including health and wellness videos, at Veggie Fit Kids on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers. Happy Sunday. I hope you're having a wonderful, plantastic day today. Well, today I have a treat for you. You are going to really love this interview. I know I did. I love these two people, Aisha and Dean Sherzai, Team Sherzai. They're amazing. They give so much of themselves to help other people. And they're really interested in helping prevent Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. And what Dean called during the interview to restore our cognitive vitality, which oh, I just love that. I just think that just sounds so appealing and amazing. But let me tell you a little bit more about these amazing people. As co-directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Medical Center, the Sherzais, through research and their extensive collective medical backgrounds, work to demystify the steps to achieving long-term brain health and the prevention of devastating diseases such as Alzheimer's and dementia. Dean Sherzai, MD-PhD, is co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda, he trained in neurology at Georgetown University School of Medicine and completed fellowships in neurodegenerative diseases and dementia at the National Institutes of Health and UC San Diego. He also holds a PhD in healthcare leadership with a focus on community health from Andrews University. Aisha Sherzai, MD, is a neurologist and co-director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University, where she leads the Lifestyle Prevention Program for the Prevention of Neurological Diseases. She completed a dual training in preventive medicine and neurology at Loma Linda University and a fellowship in vascular neurology and epidemiology at Columbia University. She is also trained as a plant-based culinary artist. And I had them on Veggie Doctor Radio today because they have written a fabulous book called The Alzheimer's Solution, a breakthrough program to prevent and reverse the symptoms of cognitive decline at every age. So please go pick up a copy, listen to the podcast. I hope that you get a lot out of it. Also, please don't forget that it really helps me if you rate and review the podcast and also share it. Share this widely with other people that you think may benefit, especially if there's people 
friends, family members in your life that they fear Alzheimer's and they feel like they're destined to develop it, show them that there is a way to prevent it, at least delay it, slow down the progression through diet and lifestyle choices. I hope that that is what you gather from this conversation. You get some good nuggets that you can take with you and continue to eat those whole food, plants, get those plants in. Without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Well, Dr. Aisha and Dean Sherzai, thank you so much for being on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Thank you so much for having us. It's our pleasure. So glad to be here with you. You're well, doing amazing work. Oh, thank you so much. You guys are just amazing. You're just like this power couple, like plant-based neurology power couple. I admire you guys so much. I asked my husband if he wanted to form Team Lancaster with me, and he was not quite as enthused. So he's internal medicine. I'm pediatrics. I don't know. It just didn't match quite as well. But you guys... (laughs) You guys have written just a wonderful book. I got to read it while I was on vacation with my entire family, my parents, my mother-in-law, my kids, my husband. And uh, I think that maybe my family might have been a little irritated with me because as I was reading the book, I was taking notes and developing a plan for each person to help them prevent Alzheimer's disease by the end. I was like, I had like a little private consult there. Okay, this is what I prescribe for you and this is what I prescribe for you. So uh, it's dangerous for me to read these kinds of books on vacation with my family. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You're, you're, you're giving guidance and, uh, and nothing better in a, in a, in a restaurant and a, and a family gathering to tell them eat this and not eat this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Especially when you're in Cancun, Mexico, right? <laughs> So I wanted to start out with, you know, the hardest question, which one of the quotes that I have from your book is the question is no longer if we develop the disease, but when, and that's referring to Alzheimer's. And this is sobering news. And for some people, it might be quite frightening. But my question for you is, can we prevent Alzheimer's disease? Um, uh, So at this point, for a great majority, we can. For a great majority that would otherwise develop the disease, we can. Now, um, uh, there is a small proportion of the uh, population that develop Alzheimer's, about 3 to 5%, that no matter what you do and no matter what kind of interventions that we actually describe in this book you, you undertake, they will develop the disease. You might be able to push it back. In fact, we're about to publish a paper on one of that population I'll tell you about. But even that population that's at high risk can be affected through lifestyle. But for the greater 90 to 95%, and we use the 90% as very conservative because we're thinking about 95%, you can definitely push the disease far enough back, at least past normal aging. You know? And that's, that, was, that was the most controversial thing we said in this book. This is not a book that's about gimmicks, although publishers always want something extraordinary, something that's going to grab attention. And, you know, it's not about the vitamin of the day, the superfood of the day, the super activity of the day. 
you know, uh, don't eat from this time to that time, which is a popular thing now, uh, because it's something you can do that's confined, but you can do whatever else outside of that. People want that way out. They, it was, we, 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 our book is hard work mm-hmm. and, and it's small steps. And since I'm a behaviorist, it's about habit building. My whole life has been about human motivation and habit. So it makes it easier in that sense, but it's about real things. Now, the 90% is, it doesn't mean that they're not genetically influenced. We're all genetic beings. I mean, I tell people that in, in talks that every disease and everything is genetic. Even if you get in a car accident, there was a genetic factor there, your attention or the other person's attention. But the genes in Alzheimer's for greater than 90% give you a range of risk. What you do in life determines if you get it as early as 60s or earlier or as late as 90s or 100. And, and for, since the average population, the age um, mortality in America is 80, actually lower than that now, you will live past the you know, normal life without the disease. That's the important thing. I'm sorry, one other thing, we even think it's beyond just Alzheimer's. Yes, for 90 to 95%, you can avoid the disease. It's more about maintaining cognitive vitality. That's what it's all about. And we see cognitive decline as a much, much, much bigger problem than just Alzheimer's. I mean, Alzheimer's is big enough. It's the biggest, fastest growing epidemic. But when we go to give talks in churches and communities, those 55, 65 and above, we see cognitive decline ubiquitously. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with lifestyle. I love that cognitive vitality. And I love that you are spinning this in a positive way because I started out with the fearful question, right? Or like, oh my God, you know, how can we prevent Alzheimer's? But instead, how can we foster, how can we encourage cognitive vitality throughout our lives, through our long lifespan? That is just beautiful. I love it. So you have this beautiful mnemonic that you've come up with to describe your plan, and it's called Neuro. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So Neuro stands for nutrition, exercise, unwind, or, you know, we had to find a word for stress, um, unwind or stress management, and we'll talk about what that means. It's not just necessarily bad stress, but reducing bad stress and increasing good stress. The R stands for restorative sleep, not the type of sleep where you close your eyes and you're knocked out with medication, but the type of sleep that allows you to go through each stage of, uh, of the sleep. And O stands for optimizing cognitive activity to increase that vibrance and the resilience that we all need throughout our life. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I love how that also kind of dovetails in with some of the words that are used in the blue zones as well, which is yes. something that can kind of go hand in hand. So one of the things that's big, of course, is the nutrition. So one of the first letters there, the N. And you talk a lot about processed foods, especially foods that are high in sugar and saturated fat. So why are those toxic to the brain? You know, we are going through a lot of noise right now. We're experiencing a lot of noise about keto, paleo, this, that, and the other. And it's nothing new, actually. It's only that social media makes it more prevalent and more ubiquitous, and, and you can see it every day. But the diet of the day is not nothing new. The, the, the gimmick of the day is nothing new. 
It's been going on from South Beach to you, the names just change. And it's usually around confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. People want to know that they can eat that bacon and then don't tell me anything else. I don't want any, any other research. I just want to know that I can eat that bacon. Um, that's it. And, and, and we select data to confirm ourselves. And, and that's been going on. The reality is that nutrition has been um, uh, well documented for 80 years. We would, uh, the fact that the whole food plant-based has affected healthcare uh, at every level you can think of, from diabetes to heart disease, uh, to um, um, you know, cholesterol, to hypertension, studies have proactively, prospectively shown to change disease. I mean, not just short-term and long-term, um, and none of that has been shown in others. So that's the difference that, uh, that, that, that exists right now. Uh, and we brought it to brain health. And, and actually, it's not even that controversial what we did. Mm-hmm. If you think that by eating less fat, you'll deposit less fat, it would make sense. If you think that sugar, which is the number one inflammatory product, is bad, and if you reduce it, it's going to reduce inflammation for the brain as well. That's it. So the four mechanisms that we've actually identified, it's not new. We just brought it in this context. It's glucose dysregulation, lipid dysregulation, inflammation, and oxidation. Now, those are not separate processes. You're, you know, they're all interconnected. The only thing is with brain, people can come to, a, uh, to the disease of Alzheimer's and other diseases from the inflammatory component from this regulation component, that's where the APOE4 and, and other things come in, from the glucose dysregulation, where we just wrote a paper that showed that even without diabetes, if you have regular high glucose levels, you have insulin resist, uh, resistance, you have cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. So those four processes, dependent on each other, but you know people come at different levels, will affect all the body, but especially the brain, why? The brain is in the rest, like the rest of the body, but with a simple chain, difference. This little three-pound organ is 2% of body's weight, but consumes 25% of the body's energy continuously. Mm-hmm. That's the highest ratio of size and energy utilization in the, in the planet. There are other bigger brains in the planet, you know, the whales and, and, and others. But our energy utilization is the highest. It means that it's under attack. So the things that are bad for the heart are going to be even more bad for the brain. The things that are bad for your uh, endocrine system are going to be even worse for the brain. So glucose, saturated fats, inflammation, and oxidation are the process just focus. And if people just realize that and even take out the inflammation because that could be downstream, glucose dysregulation and fat dysregulation, there it is. Then that will tell you a diet very easily. And it's a whole food plant-based. Yeah. And, and, and this false battle, no, it's not sugar, it's fat. No, it's not fat, it's sugar. It's a false battle. There's ideology behind it. I, I, I'm, I'm all for the ideology where animal rights and all that, but, but glucose is bad as well. Sugar is bad. Mm-hmm. Especially high glycemic uh, products yes. are bad. Yeah. So that's it. If we people realize that carbohydrates are not bad, they're great. You know, whole, whole, whole food carbohydrates. But the simple sugars that are not available in most of the world and definitely was not available in U.S. even in the 18th centuries, as much as we're getting now, just 20 times, um, you know the system's going to be... I, I compare this to this. I say, uh, and I'm going to age myself and whoever understands this, they're, they're aged already. That, that car Pinto, 
Ford Pinto. Remember Ford Pinto? No, you don't remember. So you, she, yeah. She, she, she didn't shake her hand. It's an old uh, car um, and it's a terrible car. And um, imagine putting a Pinto on a nitro fuel 24 hours, seven days a week, ever, 12 months a year for the rest of your life. It, the engine will burn after the first couple of weeks. That's what you're doing when you put them on sugar and in saturated fats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of unprocessed food is that, you know, the, the, the fats that are in plant foods, they're unsaturated. And the sugar that is in fruits and vegetables, they're bound with so many other wonderful things that it doesn't shock your body. So the body has, you know, developed mechanisms over thousands and thousands and thousands of years to understand, we can recognize, we can say, understand and recognize those components and use it instead of, you know, having these processed foods where you have an, you know, profound amount of sugar get into circulation and cause inflammation and oxidative byproducts. That's why whole food plant-based diet is an amazing uh, source for energy uh, for the body. Yeah, I was... I was super shocked. I first heard you guys talk in California last year at the Plantrition Conference. And whenever you said that the brain is just 2% of our body weight, but consumes 25% of energy, then it all just made sense to me. Because we talk about diet, and I think most people, they talk about nutrition and diet, they're really interested in the external things like what we look like and how much we weigh and maybe your skin and losing body fat. But the most important organ in our body is our brain. It doesn't matter how much we wear, what we look like, if we're going to, you know, abuse our brains and not be able to live a long, joyful, healthy life. So I just wanted to clarify for the listeners is that whenever we're talking about the sugar and glycemic index, we're referring to the foods that are not as healthful. It's going to be your cakes and your cookies and your candies, the refined foods, just like Aisha said, not your whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds, which are healthy for your body and in turn also are going to be healthy for your brain. So that's, that's beautiful. Thank you guys so much for that. So as far as just one other point on sugar, because this is one of those things that I I think people have been, you know, having a love-hate relationship for a long time and people try to go off of sugar all together and then maybe we find like a stevia or something and then like stevia is the thing. So is there a type of sweetener that is better than another? And I know Aisha, you develop recipes and you're a a master in the kitchen. So if you were to talk to people about sweeteners, how should they choose to sweeten their foods if they want to? Sure. I think uh, I'm, I'm so glad that we have options now in, in, in the grocery stores of using artificial sweeteners. Um, And it's, quite helpful for people who are getting off of that sugar high, that sugar rush that they're used to. We have things like erythritol and stevia that are amazing and people can sweeten their desserts, their coffee beverages with that. They can even use it in specific desserts. Um, Overall, you know, there is no research that shows that these artificial sugars are harmful. You know, whenever uh, Dean and I are in clinic, Obviously, we get a lot of questions about, but it's not natural. You know, that's an artificial sugar. Is is that better than natural sugar? How about agave syrup and maple syrup? Those are natural, so they must be good. And our answer is usually, you know, 
depends. If you are very concerned about your brain health and the type of population that we work with are elderly who come in with symptoms. For them, it's very important to get off of sugar as soon as possible. But say, for example, you're healthy and you are once in a while exposed to you know, natural sugars like maple syrup and agave syrup, that's fine. But for the most part, I think to create a habit of not um, having high glycemic index, not having higher sugar levels in our circulation, it's best to sweeten our food with either artificial sugars, erythritol and stevia, or even use uh, fruits. You know, I, I use fruit pastes. I use date paste for cookies. And sometimes when we make desserts, I have, you know, a preteen and a teenager at home. It's going to be, there's going to be a riot if we don't have sweets um, around the house. So I use fruits and, and actually, you know, with a little bit of preparation and knowledge, of how to use it, you end up with some really amazing desserts and sweets at home. Yeah, they're amazing. And sometimes you won't even realize. And I want to point out to the listeners too, that this neuroadaptation of your taste buds in your brain happens over time as you get off of these processed foods. And you will one day realize that fruits are sweet enough, you know? And so it just takes time. And like you said, for some people, they may need that transitionary type of artificial sweeteners as they're getting off, but someday they may realize that sweetening with fruits is enough. Dates are just amazing. I love dates. They are. Mm. are. I wanted to add something just to support what you just said, because it's very important. Um, It's all about creating habit and palate rehabilitation. And, you know, it's very difficult to get off of sugar. We understand that and we acknowledge that. And, you know, sugar actually works on the brain the same way cocaine does you know it the dopamine receptors are activated and it's you you actually go through a withdrawal when you're used to high amounts of sugar so the most important message that we can give out to the audience and listeners is give yourself time Mm -hmm. it takes more than a week more than two weeks it takes almost you know months to uh, be okay with no sugar in your life. And you actually create new pathways in your brain. You strengthen the brain areas that are okay with no sugar around it. So, so stay put, it actually takes a long time. And Aisha, I, I love also to try to humanize us physicians and experts. And in your book, you talk about your own past and your history. You have a sweet tooth yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about as you learned about the importance of diet and your health, how you were able to decrease the amount of processed foods you were eating in favor of eating whole plant foods? It was a combination of, you know, understanding the amount of damage that I had already done to my body, as well as preparation. When I was at Columbia University training to become a vascular neurologist, um, I actually took courses, cooking courses in downtown New York City, just because I loved my dessert. And I knew that that was the way to enhance the public health aspect of brain health. In the clinic, you know, you get sick and tired of passing aspirin and and medication for cholesterol after people have a TIA or a stroke or they come in with cognitive impairment. It's over and over again. But if you really want to enhance their cognitive activities, you actually have to learn, teach them how to cook for themselves. So I learned 
I read and I learned and I learned how to use, you know, date paste and artificial sugars to keep that consistency. And at the end of the day, if it's not delicious, nobody's going to eat it. So I did spend a lot of time teaching myself how to cook. It was hard. You know, I, I started this back in medical school. There were moments when I would, you know, fail and I would go back to that sugar rush that I was used to. Uh, but then over time, I learned how to appreciate food without any sugar. It took me a long time, but but I did it. And your palate changed. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and I think that's important to point out the persistence too, because most people, they feel like, oh, it's too hard. And then they just give up right away when it, it might take a while. So even if you feel like you revert a little bit, just get back on the horse and try again, because eventually you will get it. Absolutely. I still get excited when I go to, um, you know, some bakeries, when you look at the beautiful cupcakes or the cakes and the donuts, and I get, I get this little rush in my head because that part of my brain that was, that was, you know, used to that smell of sugar and the sight of the candies, I mean, it gets activated, but, (laughs) you know, you, you basically... Uh, you, you unlearn certain habits and then you learn new ones. So, you know, with time you create new pathways and then it becomes easier. And the, the other very important thing is for people to know it's not about motivation. It's yeah. not about the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the statement that you write on the wall. That helps a little bit. It's about a clear vision, a measurable, attainable vision and small successes in that direction. That becomes motivation. That becomes actually the substance of behavior change. So, you're, you're right. Persistence, but a clear path toward an action. For example, if you want to get rid of sugar and you know you're a sugarholic, let's say, the first step is not complete elimination. The first step is quantify how much sugar you're getting. Then quantify how much you can truly reduce in six weeks. Mm-hmm. And then take steps, measurable steps. In one week, I'll reduce by this much. And by two weeks, I'll do this and then have a way to measure that, check that. The ability to check things off that actually turns off, turns on dopamine receptors. I mean, that, that just gets that pathway going. The second thing is it's a clear path. And then what the brain does, the brain's ability to fill in space, to fill in stories is actually the most powerful thing we have. That's at the core of motivation. When you have a series of successes, some people say 21 days, some people say, no, it depends on the behavior. I mean, if something's extremely addictive, it's not going to happen in 20 day, 21 days. But if you, have a, if you have a series of successes toward a clear goal, what the brain does is creates a story, an emotional story, a limbic story, I call it. I like it. I want to do more of it. That I want to do more of it, there, that is motivation. Mm. Now that's the first time that motivation has been operationalized neurologically. And more importantly, then the habit pathways in the basal ganglia, you're starting to make that pathway, chiseling, getting rid of the old one. That takes time. And after a while, actually, that becomes the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Because if you're doing things outside of your old habits that were set during teenage years, and how many functional habits have we developed in teenagers? Just put teenage and functional habit together. That tells (laughs) you, gives you the answer. If you're replacing that, that means that it's going to take time but what happens after a while, this time, now you're actually consciously, proactively creating new pathways of habit mm-hmm. through a, a goal, clear goal, and small successes. That's the only way we can be successful in changing diet. 
not with a gimmick or a slogan or a sign on your wall, but clear direction. And oh, yeah. That's beautiful. And it, it goes along with that concept of building self-efficacy, because if we have those small steps that are achievable, then each time you accomplish that, I said, checking it off, something that you can mark off and said, yes, I was able to do that behavior. I was able to do that habit today. It gives you the energy, kind of like that pat on the back to, I can do it again. I know I can do it again. And each step you get higher and higher, you know, you can achieve more. So I love that you set that out for us in that way. And I tell people all the time that it, for most people are not all or nothing type people. Yes. And that sets a lot of people up for failure because it's kind of this perfectionistic, if, I, if I'm not perfect, then I'm not going to do it at all. And when it comes to diet and behavior change, seeing it that way can, can lead to problems. Instead, step-by-step, persistence, keep going. I think that that's a a great way to do it. So absolutely, Dean, I wanted to ask you too, because in the book I read that you come from a background, you grew up hunting. So how did that influence once you started learning about the power of a whole food plant-based diet and the choices you make? And has that been a conflict for you and your family at all? Yes. Um, the good news is that I was a terrible hunter. <laughs> and, and we had a, this, uh, this um, land outside of Charlottesville, 150 acres my uncle had were for hunting and we would go. And I tell people who say, they, they bring up the paleo thing. I say, I say first of all, um, go to a field, no guns, and try to catch a rabbit. <laughs> let's see how you, you, you know, uh, it's, it's crazy that people actually think that we, that that's something that we had every day, four meals a day. And it, it's, it's, it's not accurate. Then also depending on the location and everything else. So I was a terrible hunter, but the idea that family was into meats and hunting. Um, and then we actually changed directions because of the science and because of the uh, uh, um, the issue of ethics, but but science didn't didn't hurt because the science was there, uh, and it was a, a humongous conflict, and and it was um uh, we were, there was a bit of an ostracizing, and not not a great deal, but a little bit of an ostracizing, and um, discomfort whenever there's family gatherings because all family gatherings are around meals. Uh, so, uh, what do we feed these two, you know? And we said, don't worry, we, we, we can, we can survive fine. So there, that's a difficult transition. That's another difficult transition people have is not so much believing the science because it's there and, and not because then the second group says, you know, I can actually even see myself doing it. So they do it. The, the third impediment or hurdle is the family, the social setting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and I can see that for a great many, right. even in a tacit way, in a quiet subconscious way, that might be the biggest hurdle. How, why would I change from my patterns? Am I disrespecting the, you know, the, the, the culture and everything else? Actually, it's a beautiful thing. You're not only creating healthy habits for yourself, profoundly healthy, there's no question. You're creating profoundly healthy habits for your children, for people that actually respect you and want to follow a little bit, even if it's not a hundred percent, they change and hear. And, and, and we've seen this in our families Absolutely. and some communities, even the ones that actually opposed us at first. Now, every time we get together, Oh, I reduced my meat consumption by this much. So the amount of influence is just incredible. Uh, I tell people find out the truth and it's there. 
Mm-hmm. Be resilient and stand because it's good for you, for your health, for your children, for environment, for everything else. And how we see our relationship with the world, that's incredibly important and makes you a pro- proactive being. And then don't worry. Even the people that opposed you or were uncomfortable with you in this environment, I think everybody knows and they will come around. Mm-hmm. Not only will they come around, uh, it's, it's now become, even in our families, it's become, I, the idea is that they know. So they say, we know that's true. So in the, in the beginning, that wasn't the case. But they say, we know it's true. It's going to take me a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And from a health perspective, you know, we've been plant-based for almost uh, 15. 15 years. And Dean used to have daily migraines and he had some other oh. health issues. Not, none of that. It's been an amazing journey where, you know, he's basically reverse aging. I tell you, um, uh, I'm 85 years old. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no, I'm just, so uh, no, it's, uh, no, I had to do something with the reverse aging thing. <laughs> you know, I do have white beard, so I, I have to, so I have to shock them. No, but uh, it's, I had migraines regularly. Now, now I have to stop here and say, I don't believe in anecdotes as science. There are beginnings of science, beginnings of questioning. That's why when the coconut oil thing comes out and say, you know, that whole thing was on anecdote of one. Mm -hmm. And despite every other piece of research we did, one of our big pieces, which is the anecdote of Mm 3000, being 3000 people in the only blue zone in America we saw in our dementia clinic. And I studied their diet and lifestyle. And I know that in them, the number of people that were in a 50% vegetarian community, the number of people that came to me with dementia, you could count in one and a half hands. Yeah. I mean, not in, I mean, basically in two, uh, it's, it's bewildering. I mean, that anecdote should shock people. If, if an anecdote of coconut oil of one got this whole movement, what about these 3,000 people in a blue zone area where they had nowhere else to go to me than me? And all I saw was a handful of people who are vegetarians and plant-based and active that develop dementia, you know, under the age of 85. That's, that should blow everybody's mind up. And then of course we had the CVLT study and others. Um, so no, the data is there. People, people are beginning to, um, to understand um, and making cutting through the noise. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's just amazing. Well, I just want to go back a little bit to the family. I think that the points that you made are are very important in that. Yeah, it can be awkward, especially my family. Um, originally from Panama, my family are farmers there and we have a huge dairy farm. So it, it was one of those things that can be awkward, but I agree with you just follow your healthy habits and serve as a role model and people will come to you when they're ready or when they're interested for more. I think the, the hardest thing at the beginning when you're very passionate, right when you learn all about it and you're just like your eyes are opened up, the hardest thing is just not trying to force people. But I think that once you calm down and you just kind of stand your own ground and you just do your own thing and then people slowly start to come over and ask you questions. So I think that that can be very powerful. But you guys, you are like true, like you work for real, like you're not just like sitting around and, you know, blogging, you're actually seeing patients, you're very busy, both of you, and you have two beautiful children. So one of the questions that people have is, is it realistic? Can I actually have a full-time job, have kids, have a busy lifestyle, and eat a whole food plant-based diet? Doesn't that take like a ton of time and energy and money? 
No, it, it doesn't. Uh, absolutely, you can do it. And especially nowadays with all the options we have, we're all close to, you know, great grocery stores or farmer's market. I think it, it takes um, a, some level of planning if you're not used to it. You know, setting aside uh, at least two hours a week to plan out your meal for the rest of the week and, you know, discussing it as a family. For us, I think it has worked beautifully because we've included the kids in the conversation. We have an 11-year-old, Sophia, and a 13-year-old, Alex, and they're a part of the meal preparation and deciding what we're going to eat. So the onus is on them. The decision actually falls on them to make sure that everybody um, gets a healthy meal and including them in the conversation of the why. You know, why is it that we need to eat healthy? Uh, and if they understand that, and if they agree with that, then, you know, it's, it's a done deal. The, <clears throat> the other thing is quality of life um, is, is important for everybody. So whenever somebody says, do I have time? I say, do you have time to develop cognitive decline in your 40s? Mm -hmm. Do you have time to develop dementia in your early 60s? Those are the numbers. Yeah. We go to the churches, we go to the communities where food is not at the center or it's bad food. And every man over the age of 65, and I'm not exaggerating, every man over the age of 65 has dementia. Yeah, we're, we're not really, diagnosed. Yeah, we, we actually, when you see a lot of patients in the clinic, you can, you can feel that slowness in cognition yeah. right away when they're speaking with you, when they're walking, when they're moving around, especially from their eyes. And you, you look at the audience and it's just devastating. Uh, in fact, the profits from our book and most of what we do goes to this Healthy Minds Initiative, which uh, the purpose is to get knowledge and information about brain health and, and lifestyle to communities that don't have it. That's the most, because we see it. We see the devastation. The numbers are big enough where it's recorded. 5.6 million people have Alzheimer's. Nearly 6 million people or more have dementia. Fastest growing epidemic over 90% increased rate of the mortality from dementia in the last 10 years. That's remarkable. These are big enough, but actually those numbers are a fraction of the truth out there. Mm -hmm. uh, African-American communities, Hispanic communities, minority communities, low-income communities uh, are devastated. But nobody's recording those numbers. We see it because every weekend we are in churches, we are in communities. In fact, we are where we are right now is beach cities, Manhattan Beach, Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach. Well, this is a, a well-to-do community, but this is the first ever community or district-wide brain initiative in the country mm. where healthy lifestyle is being implemented throughout the 130,000 population. Every restaurant will have a brain-healthy um, uh, menu, plant-based, plant -based, uh, at least one item or two yeah. items, and then environment, other environmental factors. I think we can do it. I think we don't have time for disease. We have time for organizing and, and, and living a vibrant, beautifully vibrant minds, you know, and maintaining it well into your 80s, 90s and beyond. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It, it is about prioritizing. And what do you want to have? What do you want to have more as you look forward into your future? And that brings me to the second part of your mnemonic, which is the exercise. I love reading in your book how you guys are very practical about how you get movement throughout your day. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Well, you know, the the statement that Dean and I always use um, is, you know, the best place to uh, initiate health is at home, be it nutrition, be it exercise, stress management, et cetera. And for exercise, you know, all of us lead very busy lives. So we bring exercise into our home, not even home, in the living room, because sometimes you just don't want to walk outside of your living room into another room to exercise. So we have, you know, a few equipment around us that remind us that it's important for us to exercise. We make sure that we wear our tennis shoes so that, you know, even if we have five minutes between one meeting and another, we can go for a brisk walk or maybe do some squats or some lunges and things of that nature. And when you make a plan, again, it comes back to planning and put it uh, in a conspicuous place where you're reminded about those activities every single day and then you check it off, you'll be surprised how much you can get done, whether it's you know aerobic or strength training or stretching or developing balance right around your vicinity, whether it's in your office room, in your bedroom, in your living room, it can happen very easily. That's awesome. And I, I also remember in your book how you talked about the one study with the lower body, like the leg muscle mass and how that's associated with like cognitive health. And I am one of those people that has huge quad muscles. And so I was like, yes, finally, something good about my huge legs. <laughs> so now, now I'm proud of my my huge quad. So bigger legs, bigger brains. Nice. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about sleep because I feel like this one gets neglected a lot. And this is a huge problem in the United States is people not sleeping enough. So how important really is sleep to our long-term brain health? Um, uh, sleep is critical. I mean, it's the period. Uh, we wouldn't have sacrificed safety all, you know, if, if it wasn't that, 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 that important. Eight hours, you're knocked out. You know, that bear just, or that lion or um, uh, saber tooth just, you know, walking around in the, the dark, goes by your cave and just mauls you. That's not a, <laughs> why would evolution have, you know, why would this have been created? And, and uh, because it's so restorative. That 25% energy usage, that is overheated brain. I mean, not literally, but, but uh, probably more so than that for the brain. It needs restoration. And the brain actually does its best work in, at nighttime, um, and where it does two things. One is it actually puts memories and ideas and concepts and information in the right files and folders as it pertains to the brain. And then the second thing it does it is detoxifying the brain. It's the most effective detox out there. When we were in Beverly Hills and uh, Cedars, uh, everybody, you know, people would come with this detox and that detox. I said, there were only two detox that we know, unless in the poison situation, you know, there are the, but in regular life, there are two detox. One is water, drink plenty of water because, you know, that is a process of detoxification and much more. The second thing is sleep. People who don't get good sleep, their amyloid levels go up if they're at risk. Which is a protein that is associated with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, the inflammatory markers, cortisol, all these things that can cause havoc in your brain go up. In fact, even your microglia, which are the janitor cells that clean up the brain, they start doing bad things if you're not sleeping. They start eating away at the brain itself. Mm. So sleep detoxes, sleep cleanses the brain. And the bad news here, you can't make up for it in the weekend. Mm. So create a pattern there as well. Again, organization. 
Because if you don't have organization, that's where actually the unwind comes in. The unwind is actually uh, creating a mechanism that, that orders things around, puts the bad, defines the bad stress, defines the good stress. Your job in life is to increase the situation and opportunities for good stress and reduce the bad. And if you do that, then you don't have these running thoughts. Who has running thoughts? People who are living an urgency-based life. From, from emergency to emergency, they think they're doing a lot. Actually, they're doing a lot less than somebody who's calm and organized and everything is in the right order. Mm -hmm. So that's why sleep has to be built into your program. You have to make time for it. You have to create a pattern for it. You have to eliminate things that usually affect sleep and, and, and increase things that positively affect sleep, like morning brisk walk, which increases the light. The light increases melatonin in the right time and the right dose. People sleep better. So uh, make sleep a very important part of your program because without that, your brain starts eating itself. Uh, you know, actually, people don't get sleep, have smaller brains. Oh, that's really, that's really scary. As a pediatrician, this is something I talk about almost every single day because adults, we see that in our kids, right? We see that when they start having behavior problems, they start getting kind of irritable and whiny and have meltdowns. They may not be able to do as well in school. We make the direct connection. But for some reason, when it comes to us, like I know that if I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm very easily tearful, I get grumpy, I get depressed, like life just seems dull and not fun. But it takes me a while to start making a connection. Oh, for three nights, I've been neglecting my sleep a little bit. But we see it directly in kids. So we should remember that that doesn't stop just because you become an adult. It's important your whole lifespan, especially in those little kids. I, I really stress to parents, please, please, protect and conserve that nighttime bedtime routine. Don't be going out late at night, partying. Just please let those kids get the sleep that they need for the health, the long-term health of their little brains. I'm going to advertise a, a, a very shameless plug here. Um, our kids, Alex and Sophie, have written a book. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's called no. Super Me. And uh, it's about this, about uh, how their lifestyle has changed their, you know, how they manage it, how they manage their sleep and why it's important. And so from kids to kids, it's got lots of illustrations by a friend of ours. And, and the whole, uh, the funds are going to go to, a, sorry, the, the, all the profits are going to go to a fund for education for kids um, the Children's Hospital and, and Loma Linda. And the idea is to kind of, uh, kids showing other kids, that you can do this. You can, you can build a better brain. You can actually eat healthy, a plant-based diet, and it's fine. It's, it's wonderful that you can actually use optimizing capacities to build your focus, your attention, and why sleep is so important. But it's from them to other kids. Uh, so, yeah. That's uh, so was, cool. Uh, if they go to the, the uh, sciencekidsacademy.com, uh, they can see it. Science Kids Academy. Well, I'll definitely order a copy to have it in my office so that all the kids that come here can read it and definitely promote that. That's wonderful. I did not know the talents of this family. It's like the whole team, the team of four. It's not just the two yes, of you guys. That's exactly. great. Well, I want to go back to something that's controversial right now, or maybe controversial, seems controversial. And it's so confusing. It's this ketogenic diet that people are just 
it's the current fad. And the reason I want to bring it up is because you hear over and over that people purposely say things like, the brain loves ketones. You're going to have this mental clarity. It's just going to be in it just over and over. You'll think better and you have more energy. So what is the true science here? Can you guys comment on the ketogenic diet? Is this something that is better for our brains or not so much? There is no data so far that shows that ketogenic diet is healthy for the brain. So what happens is in a ketogenic diet, as you know, um, carbohydrates are cut down to the point where you basically are not getting any glucose, which is the smallest uh, incremental por- uh, part of carbohydrates, whether they're you know good carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates, or refined carbohydrates. And ketogenic diet is very, very high in fats. So about 70 plus percent of the constituents of the diet is fats and some protein and minimal carbs. What happens when we eat a a ketogenic diet is that the body goes into a starvation mode uh, or almost like a fight or flight situation. So, you know, thousands and millions of years ago, when there would be no food around, our body would start using our glycogen stores. So we have storage of glucose and carbohydrates in our body, in our muscles, and it would start using that and it would start using fat as well. And so the fuel would be ketone bodies. These ketone bodies are used by the brain and by other cells much easier than it uses glucose. The glucose molecule has to go through many hoops, through many doors and receptors to get into the cell, while ketone bodies has a shortcut, and it goes in there very quickly. Because it's so small. It's very small. And, you know, for the first few hours and the first few days, people actually feel a rush of energy. They feel absolutely great because there is a source of fuel. However... As I said, it's a fight or flight situation. It cannot be maintained for long. And if the body continues to be in a state of starvation where it's using ketone bodies, that actually starts damaging blood vessels and neuronal structures in our brain. That's when you get inflammation and oxidation. And there has been no study beyond six weeks that actually has seen any benefit as far as energy and cognitive capacity is concerned. Um, So from a theoretical perspective, it's actually not a healthy diet at all. Mm-hmm. People who tend to use a boost of energy are individuals who are used to a very high glucose refined carbohydrate diet. And when they get rid of that, they actually feel uh, that the cloud has lifted. They actually feel sharper. But for people who are used to a whole food plant-based diet, who are getting you know, good forms of carbohydrates in their diet and small amount of incremental levels of glucose that is you know, produced and presented to the brain, they don't have any problems. They, they, and they should <clears throat> never go to a ketogenic diet. And there are a couple of ways you achieve ketosis. One is starvation. Well, you, we can't maintain that. And of course, these new diets, which is the, um, um, the prolonged um, fasting and all these kind of things. Okay, the data is still out on that. Yet some animal studies came, some positive. I tell you, we've cured 70, we've cured thousands of mice with 70 different things from Alzheimer's. But just because we cured mice, did, it, did we translate any of those to humans? No, none of them. <clears throat> mice are not men. Uh, 
So uh, that doesn't work uh, well, just because you have a mouse model. And the human model, starvation, I'm not sure about it. I know that low-calorie states are beneficial. And guess what's a low-calorie state? A salad. Yeah. <laughs> a bowl this big, which pushes the stomach walls, the three ways that you feel full. Well, that's one of them. And so low-calorie state. But starvation, sustained starvation, I'm open to it, but it's uh, the other way you achieve ketosis is high-fat diet, low-carb diet. Let's say that you do get that boost of energy for a few weeks and you get the weight, weight loss because the carbohydrates are four pounds or so, depending on the person's size. And then the water that's bound to the carbohydrates, another 10 pounds. So they immediately start losing weight. Oh, I lost 15 pounds. Why is it that none of those people are able to sustain that weight loss? Why was it that it's not like we've had, a, we haven't had a high protein diet. How many years has the, what's his name? Um, um, uh, Atkins. Atkins diet. More than 40 years. Where is a paper that showed any, any paper, 40 years, that it worked? It's the same thing. We just named it differently. So, so, yeah, weight loss immediately, but then it's lost. Energy immediately, but then it's lost. And then we know there's inflammation. So what happens long-term? Inflammation. And then we know that the fact that you used fats to achieve that, saturated fats do a lot of other things that they never talk about. They, they, you know, they start clogging arteries, they start stiffening the vessels, they start having microvascular disease in their brain. Why is that they don't talk about that thing? It's like saying, you know, it's a great way to get water by drinking Coke. Mm. Yeah, you got water. I mean, we're not even sure you get water from Coke. But then you forgot about all these, these other little things. Mm -hmm. Or soft drink, we shouldn't say Coke, but soft drink. Um, in any case, uh, I think ketosis... Uh, from fat is wrong. The data is not there, and the data that is there is bad. Ketosis from starvation or from um, fasting, the, the jury is still out. Yeah, if you're going to do that. And the other thing is, somebody's uh, they're asking you to eat within a window of six hours in a day, or eight hours, and or six hours actually in a day. And the rest of the time, you're not supposed to eat. If people are not able to avoid the McDonald's burger next door, or as they drive by. How are they going to maintain a, a lifestyle where, where they can only eat within a four-hour or six-hour window and that's it? Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable as far as a human behavior, um, even if it isn't low-fat, if, it, if it's just, you know, through starvation. So I think in so many ways, it's, you know, the gimmick? The gimmick looks at one little shiny thing and they highlight it well. Mm -hmm. And all the other things that is connected to that shiny thing, they ignore that. Yeah, well, thank you for your input on that. I've always felt, you know, that ketosis is kind of a stressful thing on the body. You know, it usually happens, we see it in times of stress, like whenever we have our diabetics that come in and they're ketotic. And so it's almost just like Aisha was saying, it's, it's like an emergency backup system for the body and it'll work. Yes, thank goodness it works because we do need it sometimes when we get sick or at times that we had famines, which... We don't tend to experience that much here in the United States, but um, it, it worked well. But I think that purposely doing it and mostly what people are doing it is for weight loss. Um, but it, it can have some risks, especially since we don't have long-term studies. So thank you so much. Well, final question for each of you, Aisha first and then Dean, what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? <laughs> um. I would say going plant-based. 
Um, I grew up in a family where, um, you know, we're quite traditional as far as our food is concerned. So, you know, meat and dairy, specifically cheese and yogurt was a big, big part of our meals. And to get myself off of that slowly and gradually was quite an arduous path. And, but I did it and I have maintained it. And, um, you know, it was essentially because we all planned as a family and we supported each other. And I'm glad that Dean and I are on, you know, basically doing this together. And it helps quite a bit when your partner is there to support you and hold your hand and you have kids that are involved. Um, or chocolate that's involved. You. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And you're just letting that go. And um, it also helped that I went to culinary school and learned how to cook because that was, like I said earlier, I had to unlearn a lot of things to be in that situation. And it was a, quite an eye opener. And I'm so glad I did it. Awesome. How about you, Dean? Um, unwind. I think at the center of everything is management, um, uh, emotional management, uh, planning, and, and making sure that you delineate between good stress and bad stress. Uh, there is a good stress. A life, a life that doesn't have good stress the brain actually atrophies, collapses. We know this from people who are highly achievers and then high achievers and then they, um, they stop working and then they don't do anything. They sit on the beach. They have the sharpest decline. Mm -hmm. So good stress is life purpose that you just put everything into it. It could be overwhelming to somebody else looking from outside, but actually builds the brain. Mm -hmm. So, and then identifying what's bad stress. Once you do that, once you have a plan, then nutrition can happen. Otherwise, you're running from, from meeting to meeting without ever planning and, and whatever comes next, you'll eat. Forget, you know, it doesn't matter how motivated you are. Or exercise. It will never happen unless you're organized to bring it in your living. So unwinding, I think, I was always pretty organized person. But then when, I, when we created this proactively in a systematic way, we have a whiteboards everywhere in the house. <laughs> Eight foot by six foot whiteboard in our living room. Uh, it really, really helped everything. In fact, that's what we teach our patients and our, our communities is to create a plan around your vision, your purpose, and then move your life towards the good stresses that you want that, that will bring joy to you. And then the food will happen by itself because you, you're already here because you know what the food and the exercise will happen mm -hmm. and the meditation will happen. Sleep. And sleep will happen. Yeah, sleep definitely because of why majority of sleep problems is this running thoughts. Mm -hmm. People are living from urgency to urgency. So once you have a plan in place, it will not be run by, 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 by thoughts that are, that are unmanaged. So I think that's, that's what I take pride in. Oh, that's so wonderful. I, I think both of you guys are just such great role models because you have such powerful information. It's just beautifully written, beautifully organized, but then you live it and you show us that it's not, you know, it's, it's not just because you were born this way. You've had to work at it. You've had to implement it. You've had to be persistent. And it shows people that, you know, we can all do it, whether you know, you're a doctor or not, you can definitely do these things so that we can all live long, healthy, joyful lives with cognitive vitality. So thank you guys so much. I hope that everybody goes out. If you haven't already, grab your book of the Alzheimer's Solution. You will love it. It has wonderful information. Aisha and Dean, how else can people connect with you? And what else do you guys have coming up that people can partake in? Um, they can connect with us through social media or by visiting our website. Uh, our website is teamsharesi.com um, and we're uh, teamsharesi on social media. 
Um, we have, you know, a couple of neuro challenges that are coming up. And, you know, if people uh, connect with us, they can get information about a seven-day or a 10-day or a 20-day challenge where we send them small morsels of information of what they can do right then and there in their environment to have a better brain. And that's been really exciting because the interaction yeah. with the community is what we thrive uh, for. And now it's it's been amazing. And all the profits of the book go to our non-for-profit organization, the Healthy Minds Initiative. Mm -hmm. And people can get more information about what we're doing in different communities, whether it's here in Beach Cities or Sedona. Um, and the website is healthymindsinitiative.org. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure and put all the links up on the show notes. And whenever I see your promotion for your challenges, I will share them on social media because I greatly support all of the wonderful work that you both do. So thank you so much for being on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having us. We're so glad to be connected with you and you know, glad to be in this journey together. Awesome. Thanks. Have a plantastic day. Thank you. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Bye. To blow your mind It's low on calories And it looks like many trees When you're having dinner with me Broccoli I hope that you enjoyed today's episode Thank you so much for tuning in And I look forward to having you back again next time A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons For permission to use the Broccoli song to find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocketsurgeonsmusic. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at VeggieFitKids on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, or you can email me at veggiedoctor at veggiefitkids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.